I want to take a second to remind you to sign up for the Poso Daily Brief. It is completely free. It'll be one email that's sent to you every day. You can stop the endless scrolling trying to find out what's going on in your world. We will have this delivered directly to you totally for free. Go to humanevents.com slash Poso. Sign up today. It's called the Poso Daily Brief. Read what I read for show prep. You will not regret it. Humanevents.com slash Poso. Totally free. The Poso Daily Brief. What happens when the fourth turning meets fifth generation warfare? A commentator, international social media sensation, and former Navy intelligence veteran. This is Human Events with your host, Jack Posobiec. Deliver us from Conservative evil. Conservative commentator claimed to release some of the writings from Audrey Hale. The shooter killed six people at the Covenant School last March, including three children. One dated March 27th says the day has come and Hale was, quote, ready. Another page dated February 3rd referenced white privilege and used a derogatory term towards the children. If you can't give us, can't give us some financial support, okay, okay, please give us a credit and we will give you back money. You have a right to hire a lawyer who can stand up and say something when they see something wrong. And I've had a judge who is unhinged slamming a table. Let me be very clear, I don't tolerate that in my life. I'm not gonna tolerate it here. A combative Donald Trump testifying for hours in a Manhattan courtroom with his real estate empire on the line. Israel intensifying its strikes on Gaza, warning civilians to move south amid what it calls massive attacks. The military saying it's now cut Gaza in two. Its forces reaching the sea, now completely surrounding Gaza City ahead of an expected assault there. The United Nations has issued a plea to end the inhumane collective suffering in Gaza. The Secretary General has described the situation in the Strip as a nightmare. At least 10,022 Palestinians have been killed since Israel began bombing Gaza. Well, there will be no... Uh ceasefire, general ceasefire in Gaza without the release of our hostages. I'm a member of the African and African-American resistance organization, and I stand with the Palestinian people. I'm an artist, and I support Palestine. I'm a photographer, and I'm here for Palestine. I'm a Google worker, and I stand with Palestine. We begin with some breaking news. A pro-Palestinian protest turns deadly after an elderly Jewish man was hit over the head with a megaphone by a Palestinian protester. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Darren Beatty here filling in for Jack Posobiec, who is on assignment and proudly introducing yet another bombshell collaborative episode between Revolver News and Human Events. We have a major, major show you just saw in the opening role. Big news yesterday at a protest, a Pro-Israel protester, an elderly man, 65 years old, seems like he was murdered. Looks like the authorities are determining whether that's a murder. He was hit on, a head, on the head, ironically, by a megaphone. And recent information that's come in, of course, the authorities are now balking and saying they don't know what happened. But the guy hit his head on the ground, and now he's dead. Of course, also part of the B-roll, you saw how all the different representatives of the diverse coalition are standing uh, with Palestine here. And so it looks like 
the nation is coming to a certain kind of reckoning as to the full implications of the diversity agenda, which has ironically been shoved down our throats through a megaphone. So the sign symbolic significance of the, of the megaphone uh, reasserts itself in this recent tragic incident. Much more on the show today. We've got breaking new news about the shocking revelations concerning the transsexual manifesto from the Hale, the transsexual mass murderer who's recently been the subject of so much news and controversy. It looks like the plot thickens still further after the pages that came out yesterday. So we're going to have the latest news on that. We've got Julie Kelly, who will tell us the latest about Trump's defiant posture at the ridiculous show trial, civil show trial, ginned up by Latita James. Julie Kelly, great guest, great researcher, one of my favorites. She's going to be on today. And as a special surprise, we've got Blake Neff, who wears many hats. He's one of the He's been one of the hidden hands behind the success of Revolver News. He's doing great work with Charlie Kirk, did great work with Tucker Carlson. He's going to be on to offer his insights regarding um, the transsexual shooter and also the collapse of America's ability to maintain complex uh, systems, which is the subject of a major recent report on Revolver.News. And last but not least, we have... Rav's very own David Zier, who is on ground in New Jersey to report on one of the biggest things going on today, which is the national election, an election which will determine a lot of the results of the issues that we've been speaking about. So tell us more about what's going on in New Jersey and give us a little teaser about what we can come to learn um, as the hour progresses. Hello, Darren. It may be an off year for the elections here, but a lot of issues, abortion, green energy, parental rights, front and center in a couple of states here, you know, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Maine. And we know about the governor's races, Kentucky, Mississippi, already taking back Louisiana to the red. Um, there's a lot of hot button issues in New Jersey here on the ground with a, a slim possibility Excellent. of maybe taking back. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the best ways that you can support us here at Human Events and the work that we do is subscribing to us on our Rumble channel. Make sure you're subscribed, you hit the notifications so you'll never miss a clip, you'll never miss a new live episode, and we're putting them out every single day of the week. But I rolled with bloods, and then boys had a saying. You can't be listening to all that slappy whack, trimatazalitzabam ship, nippy bam bam, like human events with Jack Posobiec. Darren Beatty, happy to be back hosting, guest hosting for the great Jack Posobiec, who's on assignment. Um, I'm here with my first guest, the great Blake Neff. And before we get to Blake, I just want to do some table setting regarding this um, transsexual shooter incident, very shocking developments as of late. Of course, we heard that Steven Crowder's organization was able to obtain three pages of the leaked and aggressively suppressed manifesto. Now, one, one thing that was striking about these pages, first of all, the lines that really stuck out were racially motivated lines. 
uh, stuff along the lines of kill whitey, kill the, kill the crackers, let's get them for their white privileges, which, as I mentioned last uh, show, is a very awkward formulation suggesting uh, uh, low IQ and poor writing capabilities. So it's interesting in that regard to consider that this transsexual is actually a female to male. One wonders if it would have been better written had it been the other way around, but that's a speculation for another time. And more recent developments have come out uh, suggesting that there's still more to the story, that um, some of the police officers leaked it, maybe for, for money, and maybe there's even a bigger story and more information, more pages coming out. And so we can only speculate on what that would pretend. So as I bring in my guest, Blake, tell me a bit about what you think about this issue and why, in retrospect, the manifesto would be so aggressively uh, suppressed in this case? Hey, Darren, great to be here. Uh, it's it's really wild, and you have to think, I think you're right, there has to be a lot more to this, because we know there's a ton to work with. Uh, I think they confiscated like 20 journals uh, from this uh, Audrey Hale. She had, uh, they said that she planned the attack for months, so I assume they have evidence that she did that. And then we just get three pages, and one of them seems to be the page from the day of. So it's clear we're getting a tiny excerpt of it. And as you say, it's really, it's really lame, and it's focused on the, you know, this very half-baked white privilege argument that she's gonna, she's gonna kill crackers, like, no one ever uses cracker as a slur except in the most lame ways imaginable. And so Except Dave Chappelle. <laughs> exactly. It's it's so weak, it's so flimsy that I guess it's worth remembering one reason they're suppressing this, it seems to be local factors. Like Nashville police have this. Uh, whatever their ideological motivations, I don't think Nashville police are, you know, just pawns of of Joe Biden or the FBI here. It seems there's local political factors. I think of people connected with the school have not wanted this to be brought out. Uh, but then it's also been useful to people of various ideological persuasions to to keep it hushed up. So the FBI has a reason to do it. Then also Nashville police and local people have the reasons to do it. And it's, it's tantalizing because what we have is interesting. It's very revealing. Obviously, she internalized a lot of very kind of sad Reddit tier anti-white hatred into her life. But I obviously I don't think that's what alone drove her to do a shooting. And it's it leaves us really wishing we could see the rest of it. And who knows if we ever will. Right. I was going to say, I mean, it, it seems incomplete. It's striking all of the racial terminology, but it seems incomplete. And one wonders what the real story could actually be, such as to account for how aggressive they're keeping this under wraps. Because before these page, initial pages came out, I think the operating assumption of everyone, given that it was a, re a religious school, given this, this was a transsexual, given that various transsexual issues had been uh, kind of hot in the political news as of late, various you know, uh, uh, policies pertaining to transsexuals, everybody would have assumed that this was motivated uh, more along the lines of a transsexual getting striking back at perceived religious enemies, you know, evil Christians who don't approve of the lifestyle or something. Do you anticipate maybe some more of that narrative being filled out as we learn more? Or is it simply impossible to tell and purely speculative? It, it, 
I do think that must exist, although it's surprising to me we wouldn't see it in the bits we have. We have what's right. supposedly the you know the last page she made before she went on this rampage. And what's striking to me is what I suspected was that there was probably a personal angle to it. I know she I believe she knew either one of the victims or someone who was senior at the school. And, you know, she might have been targeting that specific person and then decided to bring everyone else with her in her big suicidal uh, going away party. And but there's that's really missing from it. It's it's really it's it's very surprising to me that the last thing she's writing before she goes on a rampage is just like, well, we're one hour away. I I hope. I hope I'm ready to do this, but my victims aren't. And then there's even a sticky note up on the top that says, I think, like, lunch at 1230, question mark. It was just, it's right. not what you would expect, uh, you know, a mass shooter to put together you know, right before is, they go on a rampage. It It is an interesting kind of uh, additional variable here. When we, when we uh, see these kind of transsexual incidents in the news, typically they involve... Uh, male to female uh, transformations. And this is one of the special and rare cases involving a female to male. And what's kind of ironic about that, I mean, it's tragic ironic given the, the circumstances of it, but the writing is very feminine. It's very much um, evocative of the kind of incoherent um, uh, rage babble one might experience reading, you know, a 12-year-old girl's diary or something like that. Um, has there been any speculation as to whether this is a result of some kind of hormonal imbalance from maybe taking a little bit too much of the testosterone in, in the course of hormonal therapy or transition? It's possible. Definitely people have speculated it. I think it's impossible to read too much into it because so far we have a sample size of, of one. Uh, we could right. definitely see more. There's been a huge expansion in the number of girls who are unfortunately going down this path. But you're right. right. This is mass shootings are an overwhelmingly male phenomenon there. Uh, and then obviously we know male to female transsexuals are still essentially men. And, you know, there's sort of a morbid joke when this happens that, you know, we say they're not really men, but there's nothing more male than to go on a mass shooting. And it is, you know, we're snapping back to reality a bit here to see, oh, well, this is this is still a teenage girl who was writing like a teenage girl. And then we get back to the question of why would she go on a shooting rampage then? Because very few do. And you could be right, right. that it could be some it sort is. of hormonal shift. And you're right that it is an, a sample of one, and yet the transsexual issue really is a broader and increasingly prominent feature of our um, of our society. Now, um, Revolver News, a news organization that I'm involved with, we ran a piece um, kind of contextualizing that in relation to the Janissaries of the Ottoman Empire, a piece that you know a thing or two about. So I'd be interested to have you sort of contextualize this more broadly. What is, what is it about the, okay, we know we're in a degenerate moment. We know it's clown world. We know it's this odd combination of evil and clownishness. But what is the particular configuration of the globalist American empire such that it's so accommodating to the transsexual form? 
well, so the the reason the the Janissary Tranissary, besides being a great pun, why the comparison works so much is just for context, the Ottoman Empire, this Turkish Empire from hundreds of years ago, had soldiers called Janissaries. They were taken as children. They were uh, con- they were Christian children converted to Islam. Uh, they were slaves of the Sultan, and they spent their entire life as soldiers of the Sultan. And they were incredibly good at this because they were one of the first full-time professional militaries as we understand it today. And the comparison today is we have you know these transgender people. And what stands out about them is if you've known a few, especially male to female transsexuals, they're really committed to the bit. You know Whether we think they're really women, they at least will fanatically insist that they are. And they'll be enormously, I mean, some of them are, can be violent. Some of them can be really destructive online. They're very notorious for taking over this or that website and essentially uh, banning everyone who disagrees with them. And the special link they have with, uh, you know, the globalist American empire, as you say, is it's that they really require a high amount of thought control to keep this in place. It is inherently ludicrous to essentially everyone to say a man can just become a woman by identifying it. It needs, you need a very invasive state to terrify people into accepting this. They, you know, they fear lawsuits, they fear criminal persecution, they fear losing their reputation. And all of this goes away if you have you know, any free speech at all. And you know, it's very telling that as soon as Elon Musk buys Twitter, it becomes, you know, we see polls shift massively. People yes. start stop yes. buying into this. And so no, I think that's, that's you know how they work as the shock troops of the left like that. They need the left to be strong. It's such an interesting point. And in a different kind of almost perverse and twisted way, they make sense because they are the, the male to female variety combines the sort of cognition and mental coherence of a man with the empathy and intuition of a woman. Given the nature of the transsexual, there's rarely a family to divide loyalty to the regime. And because they're so vulnerable in any other context but being loyal soldiers to the regime, they're entirely dependent. And so in a weird way, the natural patriots to the globalist American empire. And in the piece that I mentioned, it actually recounts the kind of shocking statistic that transsexuals are actually disproportionately represented in the military currently of the globalist American empire, um, thus reinforcing the analogy with the Janissaries who were the foot soldiers to the Ottoman Empire. So a lot of fascinating connections here to give us the broader scope and the broader view. Um, We're going to come back in the next segment and talk about a different aspect of our collapsing society, and that is our inability to maintain complex systems, specifically in the aviation industry. It gets really bad. You're going to want to hear this no matter how hard it is to stomach. Stay tuned. You talk about influencers. These are influencers, and uh, they're friends of mine. Jack Rosovic. Where's Jack? Jack. He's done a great job. Hello, Darren Beatty, back here with Blake Neff in a white-hot conversation about the suppression of the Transsexual Shooters Manifesto. And before we move on to a very disturbing piece about the FAA and aviation safety, I think we just got to say, and I can speak on behalf of human events, and I'll certainly speak on behalf of Revolver, Um, All signs here point to Merrick Garland and his cronies being behind the suppression of this manifesto. 
Garland has a history. They, you know, I call him a janitor because his job is the mop-up job. He's been doing mop-ups for a long time. He played a role in covering up what really happened in Oklahoma City. His, the skeletons in his closet are far too terrifying for any Halloween or really any movie. They're hard to be believed. And so we're watching you, Merrick. We know what you're doing. The American public deserve to know what happened, the full story behind this transsexual shooter, and we will get to the bottom of it. So I just wanted to put that out there for our friend, our, our, our janitor, uh, Merrick Garland. Now moving on to more disturbing but very important news. There is a white-hot bombshell investigative piece that we just dropped at revolver.news, one of the most important investigative pieces we've ever done chronicling in detail the utter catastrophic collapse of aviation safety in the United States, documenting a massive increase in what aviation experts called near misses, where planes almost collide into each other on the runway, of loss of separation events in air, near mid-air collisions, and a generally disastrous situation pertaining to the air traffic controller industry and the way that they vet their employees and the way that they retain their employees. This took us a long time. We spoke with many senior aviation officials, many officials in the FAA, most of whom insisted on being uh, anonymous. We talked to senior air traffic control people. And the bottom line of this major piece, you have to go and read it and send it to everybody you know. This is what's going on in our country and this is going to lead to the next major aviation disaster. Two key neglected factors contribute to this. One, COVID policy. They did a major hiring freeze during COVID, but of course, we don't want anyone to catch COVID. You know, we did a major study in Revolver News, one of our biggest and earliest studies, uh, doing a cost-benefit analysis of the lockdowns. And we showed using a life years metric that the costs actually were an order of magnitude greater than the benefits, order of magnitude more life years lost as a result of the lockdowns, we didn't even take into account factors like this, factors such as we may have gutted aviation safety on account of hiring freezes introduced during the COVID period. And still more disturbing and devastating, a factor in this collapse of aviation safety, affirmative action. We've uncovered affirmative action policies implemented during the Obama administration that reverberate to this day and account for a disastrous decline in quality um, in the air traffic control system. So to talk about this story and generally what some might call the collapse of the United States' ability to maintain complex systems, we have our guest from last segment, Blake Neff, to offer his insights. What I mean about the collapse of our ability to maintain complex systems, people talk about we can't innovate anymore. That's true, but it's even worse. It looks increasingly, when you look to the aviation industry and other industries, we lack the capacity simply to maintain the systems that we already have. This is a major part of the story of the transition from the United States, from a first world country, a first world civilization, into a third world, what Trump would call S-hole. But I won't use the full word because we're live on air. So Blake, tell, tell us about this. What's your perspective here? Yeah, yeah, Darren, there's a very widespread bias with 
you know, I think people in word cell or cognitive elite jobs, they like to imagine that there's like a tiny handful of jobs for people as smart as them. And then everything else is like very easy brain dead. Uh, there was once a time where uh, Mike Bloomberg, the old uh, New York City mayor, said, like, I could teach someone to farm, you know, dig hole, put seed in hole, put, you know, put water on hole. And oh, you, you're a farmer now. And it's completely it's completely bogus. Actually, modern Tell farming that to is South Africans. Tell yeah, that to the it's South an incredibly, Africans. It's incredibly difficult to be a modern farmer. You know, the people who run first world farms in the United States or the Netherlands or any top ag producer, it's hugely difficult to do. You need incredibly smart people to do it. And those people are vanishing. But it's also even basic things. It's, you know, human capital matters all the way down the chain. It matters uh, in making sure, you know, literally that the trains run on time. It's all these like hard to measure but accumulated little things that uh, go right when you have talented and capable or, you know, when you hire the best people for the job and or when you have a good human capital pool to draw on and stuff that goes badly when you don't have those people. And so, you know, we can see this with the FAA. A decade ago, the Obama administration just straight up said the race of air traffic controllers is not right. We need to change the racial balance. And the way they planned to do this was they planned to de-emphasize a skills test and instead put a lot of focus on a biographical questionnaire, they called it. And that biographical questionnaire was essentially, you know, they gloat, as you say in the article, they gloat that. Well, this test produces equal outcomes across gender and race, unlike other more skills-based tests. So this is a good one to use. Well, it doesn't take a genius to see what's going to happen when you implement this. You're going to hire people not on their ability to be an air traffic controller. And what do you do when you hire people not on their ability to be an air traffic controller? You get people who aren't as good at being air traffic controllers. And you're going to see this in a lot of parts of American life, because a lot of American infrastructure, a lot of American quality of life is actually being carried along by a kind of handful of, of boomers with institutional knowledge who are now 50, 55, 60. They're getting up there in years. And when these people, I say boomers, but a lot of them are Gen X at this point, but older, older people who, you know, just have worked in government their whole lives, they're very anonymous, uh, but they have a lot of institutional knowledge. And if you just think you can wave a finger and replace those people with, you know, di you know, someone hired to hit a quota, you're making a mistake. And we see this in a lot of ways. We see power Absolutely. outages in the U.S. are way more frequent than they were 40 years ago. Now, granted, you know, most of us still have electrical power, but we're just a little more likely to have an outage and that outage lasts a little so, bit longer. Blake, just, to, just we, to step yeah. in here, Blake, for a second, because there's something you mentioned that's very important. This... Uh, policy uh, promulgated by the Obama administration, which is to change the testing mechanism that they used to have, which was a merit-based system in favor of what they call this biodata system, which if you read, this is all in the article, there's this lady who is, of course, a professor of HR. The fact that that's even a thing speaks to how clownish and stupid our entire society is. And we tell you about her in, in the article. She's a professor of HR, and her doctoral dissertation was effectively about how we can use this ridiculous, quote-unquote, biodata tests to um, get the more desired and balanced um, racial results. And it's really funny because the language is so obfuscatory, but when you break it down to what they're actually saying is, 
you increasingly remove questions that account for the disparity until the test actually tests nothing. And then when your test tests nothing, that's when you can achieve the desired racial balance. <laughs> it really is quite remarkable. It's insane. But it, it invokes, it, it, it forces us to recognize, and I think maybe a lot of people in the audience don't understand how bad it is, but due to this concept, this legal concept codified in the law, um, called disparate impact, and we've written about this on Revolver News as well quite extensively. According to this doctrine, any employer who uses a metric to vet employees that leads to racially disproportionate results, that is to say disproportionate to the, um, to the population, that is presumptively illegal. Now, in practice, because everything's presumptively illegal, because everything has a diverse impact, you have a bit of um, discretion here. And you would think that a society would say, okay, because the diversity agenda is largely cosmetic, we'll just have people as spokesmen, we'll maybe put them in more commercials. Maybe that's why they're all stuffed in commercials, because that's where the <laughs> least amount of damage can be done. Just have the diversity in the commercials for aviation, but leave the competent people as the actual air traffic controllers. But um, no, in fact, they actually decided to gut the controllers themselves, which leads to a question which I'd, I'd love to know your perspective on this. It's, it seems like there are two possible ways out of this. One is to entirely fundamentally transform the cultural, legal, and political landscape into the country so it's to not have this you know, diversity above all kind of orientation. Or... You have an arms race between technology and AI to see if technology and AI can pick up the slack that's created by the increasingly diverse and increasingly less meritorious employment pool. So what, I'm wondering what you think about that. I, I definitely I feel like the second, sadly, is more likely. I feel I feel like America. I mean. It's a huge lift even getting, you know, conservatives, Republicans, people who, you know, will vocally say they dislike wokeness. But it's very difficult to break the hold of like the it's very kind of diversity cult on them. And near impossible, very difficult, near impossible, but not totally impossible. Stranger things have happened, um, but it's a very long and difficult road. And, and part of the piece I advocate at the very beginning, at the very end, there's actually low hanging fruit here a lot of airports don't even have the basic technology to in, uh, assist the incompetent employees. We're on the cusp of having directed $100 billion to Ukraine. Maybe some enterprising elected official could say, hey, how about some of that to prevent the next major aviation disaster in America on account of Obama's diversity policies? How about some of that $100 billion to save us from the next big plane crash? It's a great idea. And yet at the same time, you know, there's this sense of dread where we do have, you know, we still have new technology, we have AI, we do have innovation. And it's just kind of barely keeping ahead of the consequences of all these things. And, you know, it's sort of like, if this ever slows down even a bit, we'll suddenly just run into a wall where it's like, everyone we've put into power is an idiot. <laughs> we got to wrap up. And that's a good line to wrap it up on. Everyone in power is an idiot. Indeed. Coming right up after the break with the great Julie Kelly. Stay tuned. It keeps getting hotter. ...in my ear about the boring people at your office. I'm trying to listen to the new human events. 
with Jack Pozobic. Hello, everyone. Darren Beatty back with you at a jam-packed show for you today. Um, we just got off with Blake Neff, and now we have the great Julie Kelly, one of my all-time favorites here, to discuss um, one of the all-time most ridiculous things going on in the country, which is this civil suit brought against uh, Trump by the uh, notorious and disgraced and frankly quite ridiculous and annoying Latita James, AG of New York. And so no one better than Julie Kelly to break down just the absurdities of this civil trial, but also um, some of the uh, admirable ways that uh, Trump, never one to back down or cave, um, has defied this confederacy of clowns. So Julie, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks so much for having me, Darren. So tell us, what are some of the key things that the American public need to know to fully drive home how utterly absurd this whole episode is going on in New York? So this is just a part of a multi-pronged legal attack to destroy Donald Trump and his company and his family, who have had to take the stand in Letitia James's lawsuit against the president and his corporation. Um, and look, this is a reason why American trust in our institutions is at an all-time low, because you have someone like Letitia James, a Democrat, New York Attorney General, who made going after Donald Trump one of her key campaign platforms. Then you've got this caricature of the judge, Arthur Ergonen, who looks like a, a figure out of a Tim Burton movie rather than a, <laughs> a legitimate sober judge. And they're both out there mugging for the cameras. And, of course, Donald Trump took the stand yesterday. It appeared to be, by reporting, very combative, just what you would expect from Donald Trump. But you also had reports of this judge screaming at Donald Trump, screaming at his lawyer, Alina uh, Hababa, and just this complete farcical uh, uh, just situation display of the sort of individuals that are going after Trump and, of course, by extension, all of us, which then leads to all of the other legal cases related to Donald Trump, the January 6th case in Washington, so, the classified Julie, documents Julie, if I could case. just interject really quickly, because I, I think some of the audience might not realize this. This is the case that's charging Trump on a civil, civil level for um, misreporting or misevaluating the value of his various properties and one of the real um, uh, real whoppers that came out in the course of this trial was the judge's estimation that Mar-a-Lago is actually worth $18 million. Like if that doesn't give people an idea of just how tendentious to the point of absurdity is this is, I don't know what is. It is, and that's part of it. And he was talking about some of his other properties, I believe one that was in Scotland, um, and talking about the valuation. And look how, you know, how these companies are run and how you use these estimations to get loans. You know, or just one more the, the, eight, the $18 million for Mar a Lago reminds me of a a great line that Trump had uh, in the 2016 campaign when Mitt Romney was giving him trouble and Mitt Romney was, you know, people were saying, oh, Mitt Romney's rich, Trump is rich. And then Trump says, look, 
there's a store in Trump Tower that's worth more than Mitt Romney's entire net worth. And that's sort of that for some reason, I think of that when I see this judge saying that Mar-a-Lago is worth 18 million. Well, yes. And he was talking yesterday about a castle. I think that's on one of his properties overseas. And he's like, yeah, I have a castle. Yeah, I have a castle. It's a great castle. It's a beautiful castle. It's the greatest <laughs> castle in the world. You know, just that sort of hyperbole from Trump, which is so hilarious to us, but so infuriating to his enemies. But this is also, you could tell from the judge and then the prosecution team, and especially the DOJ lapdogs in the media like Andrew Weissman, none of these people have ever signed the bottom of someone else's paycheck. They've never created any sort of job. They've never built anything, right? They are destroyers. And so you could tell that they were out of their depth in trying to comment on what Trump was talking about, what his lawyers were talking about. Um, and so, you know, you can only assume what this judge is going to do. It's a bench trial that he will convict Donald Trump. Not really sure where it goes from there. Uh, but this is uh, this is taking up a large part of Donald Trump's time and his lawyers, because you go Indeed. right from this into at least three other uh, criminal and legal matters. It seems like this is actually contempt. irritating Trump more than some of the other criminal cases, but I'd be very interested to know your perspective on how this suit fits into the broader legal strategy against Trump and specifically how you see the January 6th case um, developing in the coming months. So I was in the Florida courtroom last week, Darren, of Judge Aileen Cannon, um, and of course she has earned the contempt of the DOJ lapdogs that we talked about and corporate media because she is not rubber stamping whatever Jack Smith and DOJ wants in this case. So she last Wednesday held a hearing uh, about the, the trial date and how discovery was being uh, withheld and the foot dragging by Jack Smith and producing discovery to Donald Trump's team. And she was pretty tough on Jack Smith's lawyer, uh, counterintelligence chief Jay Brett, who is leading that investigation. And she has temporarily uh, suspended all of the pretrial deadlines. The trial was set for May 20th, and she has temporarily paused those deadlines. And it, I think that she will file an order either today, possibly tomorrow, vacating that May 20th, 2024 trial date because of the Washington, D.C. trial, which is set for March 4th, all the discovery issues and just a lot of gamesmanship by uh, by Jack Smith that she's calling out. So I'm expecting mm. that order today or tomorrow. Important to remember, Darren, so you've got the two criminal cases filed by Jack Smith, the classified documents case, which was the outgrowth of the raid of Mar-a-Lago, that's in southern mm -hmm. Florida, and the January 6th slash election case in Washington, D.C. Jack Smith brought the indictment against Donald Trump for January 6th a week after Judge Cannon had already set a trial date in the classified documents case. So now what they want to do, I firmly believe that they don't want the classified documents case to go to trial because it's so bogus and so weak and filled with so many holes. They want Judge Cannon, and this is why they pushed to move the D.C. trial ahead of this, because they want Judge Cannon to wear the jacket for, for vacating the trial date, even delaying it, or potentially, Darren, dismissing 
the entire case against Donald Trump. So that is actually, I think, of everything, all the cases that are going on, all the trials, what's happening in southern Florida to me is the most fascinating and could result mm. in a major black eye for DOJ and Jack Smith. Oh, that would be very fascinating. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at the, the, the January 6th case and you really boil it down to its essence, this and associated uh, cases really amount to attempting to criminalize um, election denial um, and to uh, basically engage in this proxy mind reading whereby they insist that, oh, he didn't actually believe that the election was stolen and so this is some kind of deception resulting in the deprivation of rights. It's a, when you really look at what legal precedent they're trying to create, it's quite, it's quite striking. It is. And Jack Smith yesterday filed a flurry of responses to Donald Trump's motions to dismiss the case based on statutory grounds, unconstitutionality, and of course, selective prosecution. What mm. Jack Smith said in one of his responses is that Donald Trump was responsible for the events of January 6th. Now, Darren, right. think of what that potentially opens up the vulnerability to everyone who has protected the narrative around January 6th. If right. it's not only to your point, of course, criminalizing, questioning the uh, results of an election, but now you're totally assigning all of the blame of that day to Donald Trump. In a fair right. courtroom, the discovery and the defense witnesses in that on that score right. alone would be monumental and historic. We say, bring it on. Let's get the full truth out there. It's always been about Trump, so this is an appropriate final stage to resolve the issue for the American public. Thank you so much, Julie. You're the best. You are too. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. Coming right up with more information on the big election day, taking states by storm. Stay tuned, we've got the results. When I'm working long hours, I'm always listening to Human Events with Jack Posobiec. Darren Beatty, glad to be back for our final and very, very enlightening uh, segment on the elections going on today. Major elections across key states deciding governors, state party officials, uh, congressional officials, very important stuff, not just as a bellwether of what's to come, but we need, we need a, the team that we can get. We need a support team. Congressional races matter just as much as anything else, as we've seen um, with the issues going on in the House recently. So here to enlighten, on the, uh, enlighten us on these issues, we've got David Zier. He's on the ground in New Jersey. David, tell us the big picture, the medium picture, and the small picture. What's going on? What should we know? And what should we be looking toward? So outside of the Mississippi, Kentucky, Ohio, and Virginia races, there's others that we should pay attention to. Uh, New Jersey, even though they may not take the legislature back, both houses, 120 seats are up. Um, they, they, the Republicans may make significant gains in the legislature there. It's important because they have an energy scandal now. Orsted, Danish company, pulling out of the two wind farm deals, the largest on the East Coast. Uh, this comes after our deal was killed in Rhode Island for offshore power. And they're supposed to give back $300 million in money to the taxpayers if they failed to build this project. Very controversial right now. Could influence races in southern Jersey and other things. And this parental rights issues here. 
here. And Governor Murphy, even though he's not up for two years, you know, has been ruling by fiat over here, uh, destroying home rule for these school districts and these towns that want to fight this woke agenda in the schools and pornographic, inappropriate material for the kids. So the, the people in New Jersey are up in arms. So I think it's important to pay attention uh, to that as well. And in New York, very significant race in Suffolk County, 2.8 million people on Long Island. In 2021, the both legislatures of both counties, both district attorneys, and one of the county executives went red. Now it looks like Suffolk County is going to go red also. So we have a congressional delegation on Long Island that is already Republican, but it could be an indicator for more seats being picked up in 2022 for congressional races. Uh, Nassau Suffolk County have been under assault by Albany and uh, legal immigration. Illegal immigration, Adam's been dumping people on you know, Long Island and uh, throughout suburban communities upstate. And Governor Hochul hasn't helped the situation. And also just pay attention to Maine. There's eight ballot measures. There's big hydroelectric power, uh, you know, issues going on and a fight for control over power to the state. And there's a ballot measure uh, question, too, which would eliminate foreign money uh, for, uh, you know, any uh, bond issues or ballot measures in the state because a Canadian company wants to come in and run the hydroelectric power. Um, but I think we have to pay attention to all of these uh, issues here. And, um, you know, uh, we'll bring you more tonight. We'll be on the ground here in New Jersey, see if there's any significant gains in the New Jersey legislature. Oh, thank you so much. That's really great information, important stuff going on. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an off uh, election in a way, but everything's important. It's important to track these things as a bellwether and just as an issue of uh, momentum as well leading up to the big show and the big showdown, one might say, um, which seems to be shaping up much to the chagrin of the corrupt, illegitimate, incompetent scum in charge of our regime. It looks like <laughs> Trump is by far the favored guy to go back into the White House and finish some very important unfinished business. Um, recent polling, as I was talking about in the last show, recent polling suggests Trump is killing it, killing it in swing states. Biden has a lot of trouble here. His support's collapsing in the Muslim community. Very important in Michigan. Michigan, by the way, where we saw the, uh, the pro-Hamas uh, convention going on. That's all a result of massive immigration pouring into Michigan. We did a major piece on this in Revolver.News covering the various NGOs and um, religious organizations responsible for resettling um, refugees into the interior. Uh, but Biden can't keep all these people happy. It's a big dilemma. This, these developments in the Middle East really cut to the cleavages and fissures at the core of an increasingly tenuous Democrat coalition. Not good for Biden. No matter what he does, he is going to piss off important people that he needs to have a minuscule chance of getting back in the White House. And so it looks like this simply reinforces the urgency of coming up with some kind of solution to the Biden problem for the Democrats. They need to get rid of him, but Biden, whose notorious corruption is coming to the fore more than ever, he's going to be clinging on to the presidency because 
if anything, he needs the power of the pardon to pardon his own corrupt family members if necessary. So the Democrats somehow are going to have to make a deal convincing Biden that he's going to be okay, his family is going to be okay, and he needs to gracefully find a way to step down either before or immediately after the election. Something major has to change because it's just not looking good for Biden across any metric. To make matters worse, Kamala Harris, who would you know, be the natural person to go to right after, she's even more unpopular than he is. So what are they going to do? They can get rid of her, they could pass her over, but then you're passing over a woman of color, and that's going to enrage the same faction of people who are enraged over Biden's Israel policy. So there is a very complicated, very important strategic problem that the Democrats have to solve. And the coming months will really show us whether the Democrats still have an efficient and strategic machine that they traditionally have been known for to see whether they can solve this problem. So that's kind of the big picture um, strategic look at what the Democrats need to be thinking about. And you already have people like David Axelrod, a major strategist for Obama, calling on Biden to somehow get out of the way. De facto Democrat strategist Bill Kristol saying the same thing. So there is panic, panic, panic in the air. They need to find out what to do. Some say he could you know, throw a wrench into it just to change things up and pardon Trump, which would be an interesting move. Um, if he were smart, he would actually do that, but it's too creative for him to ultimately do. So all eyes on this race building up to a major showdown in 2024. Human events will, of course, keep you apprised of all the latest and important developments. My news organization, Revolver.News, will as well. I'm Darren Beatty of Revolver News, filling in for Jack Posobiec, signing off. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a great day.